You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Prachi Patenkar, and she is an anti-caste writer and activist, born and raised in India, currently living in the United States. And we're going to dive into some issues that are very important for everyone practicing yoga around the world to perk their ears up and listen with an open heart and that spiritual sight that we cultivate in the yoga practice. So Prachi, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for the work that you do in the world. For many of the people who are tuning in, they are not familiar with you. Would you please kind of share with everyone how you came to do the work that you do in the world and um, how you came to be such a strong voice, uh, an activist voice in the world? Well, thank you so much, Keynote, for having me. Um, it is great to be here. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I was born and raised in India. I was, uh, raised in rural India. Um, my, my grandparents were freedom fighters who fought against, um, uh, the British, uh, colonialism, um, and, uh, um, really worked for social justice and social justice movement all of their lives. And my grandmother, until she was a 90, um, to, uh, uh, to 2017, when she passed away, she worked for the rights of women uh, across rural uh, India as well. Um, and my parents are also um, social justice movement activists who've been working. Um, my father particularly has been working for um, the uh, the betterment and 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 the um, the rights and justice for people who live in rural areas that work in uh, for farming uh, who are farmers who are uh, laborers uh, in farms um, who uh, many of whom also go to the um, uh, urban uh, areas to work in factories etc. So um, really uh, I was influenced by. Um, both my uh, my grandparents and and my parents who worked uh, on behalf and with alongside with um, struggles that are anti caste there were workers rights struggles there were women's rights struggles um, and gender justice struggles so that's what I have been influenced by since I was born uh, and so uh, because of that and because I'm a, uh, I'm a woman who comes from uh, not a dominant uh, uh, upper caste background uh, who has seen um, how the caste based society and uh, in some ways capitalist society uh, impacts women um, and and uh, communities who are from the oppressed communities. Um, I, I want to be uh, be able to struggle on behalf of them and for them and for myself to be able to make this world better. So that's why I came to the uh, place that I am and, and that's what I that's why I do what I do. How, how wonderful to come from a long lineage of a social justice family. So for people who are listening, um, they might not have any knowledge of what casteism is and why it would be necessary to protest or speak out about the caste system. So would you be able to give people a little bit of background on what the caste system is and how it creates or entrenches injustices, particularly for people who are not part of the dominant groups of society? 
Sure. Um, so, you know, what I want to say is, you know, that um, India is made up of uh, many different spiritual traditions, right? There are many different uh, religious traditions. It includes, uh, uh, of course, what we know uh, as Hinduism today. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what I, what I mean by that, what we know about Hinduism um, today. Uh, it includes Christianity. Uh, it includes uh, Islam. And this has been, these, these uh, religious traditions, these spiritual traditions have been in India for many, 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 many years. Uh, uh, my family itself practices, um, my father practices Buddhism, although he was born in what we call uh, Hinduism. Um, and um, my family also practices, and, and my, my kind of ancestors have practiced spirituality and, and, and have followed gods that are more ancestral gods um, in many ways. But what we know as Hinduism today is really what was um, many, many uh, years ago in the, um, uh, in the sixth century uh, BC was called Brahmanism. And so Brahmanism was a spiritual philosophy and ideology which was formed um, in South Asia thousands of years ago and now has become the, the, the religious ideology of what we know as Hinduism. Um, so it, it really at that time uh, when Brahmanism was a, uh, was at the uh, was forming um, at that time there were many different uh, three four different kind of um, different traditions so there was Brahmanism and Buddhism was a big tradition at that time as well it was very dominant at that time and in, in across the South Asian subcontinent um, and there were other there was Jainism at one point as well um, and so. For about a millennium, there was a battle between what was the Brahmanic tradition and the shamanic traditions, which was especially Buddhism, over the nature of what society should be. Um, and so since, since the term Hindu is uh, what was what we talk about, what it really is, is that um, the country, uh, the area that was called India was called kind of Sindh area, the Sindh geographically, and eventually Sindh became Hindu, and that's why the many for many years people were calling uh, that area Hindustan or Sindustan. And it's not necessarily Hindu at that time was not necessarily referring to the religion, but of the people of India, right? People of Hindustan, um, the people of Sindh area, and it really uh, wasn't established till Muslim and uh, in, uh, Islam came started coming into that area. So in in kind of contrast to the Muslims, it was Hindu, right? And so more in, in more so about it, rather than religious kind of thing, it was about the people there. Um, but at that time, Brahmanism created the caste system to categorize human beings into occupation-based caste groups that were predetermined by birth. So what they started, Brahmanism started what they called the Varnashrama Dharma, so Varnas, were the ca categories in which people were categorized. Um, it emerged as a concept only in the middle of the first millennium BC. And um, at first it was proposed an actual, as an actual social structure, um, but as an uh, kind of an emerging prescription for what an ideal social structure should be. So this Varanashrama Dharma, um, the, uh, uh, an, uh, kind of a structure of Varanas, um, which said that, that we had to accept the authorities of Vedas and Brahmins who were at the topmost of these Varnas. And it was a fourfold, a fourfold system where Varnas, uh, the Brahmins were at the top, 
Um, and uh, uh, there were shudras and atishudras. So shudras are the one of the lowest category, and atishudras were almost the outside of the caste system. And that's that's atishudras were eventually named uh, called dalits, or dalits called sorry, calling themselves um, dalits at the most as the most downtrodden category. Um, and Varnashram was profoundly undemocratic. It assigned people certain tasks and responsibilities and rights according to some presumed form of merit. Um, and then they started treating people differently. And then some people were pure, some people were unpure. The people that did the, the worst kind of um, unclean, uh, who, were, who were made to do unclean kind of work were unpure. And those were the most atishudras, those were the lowest caste category. And the people who were at the top, the brahmanas, were the, were the ones who were knew the knowledge. They were supposed to write. They were supposed to be able to write. They were supposed to hold the knowledge. Anybody else were not supposed to hold the knowledge. They were not be, supposed to be able to know Sanskrit, which is the language of uh, reading at the time. And so this kind of system was created by brahmanism. Um, and they named themselves at the top most of that system. Um, and that kind of system has been in India for a, a long time in different forms. And that has been come to dominate what we know as Hinduism today. And this Brahminism actually usurped and took over other spiritual practices in its fold as it went along. Um, and so the ritually diverse kind of indigenous spiritual practices of many of my ancestors and many people in India, um, the practices, the beliefs, the traditions, the festivals, the type of kind of um, that we that the, the festivals and the practices that we have that are kind of more closer to the nature that you know, uh, preserve the nature that are in, in, in concert with the nature and the living beings um, uh, of the indigenous people of India. Um, became kind of Brahminized by kind of naming them into uh, a kind of Brahministic forms rather than the forms and the spiritual practices that were actually of the people of India that were um, that were uh, uh, more about kind of justice and more about uh, kind of equality rather than this kind of uh, fourfold Varna system. Um, so this graded division of labor, it was really graded division, right? So the caste system created this division of labor that was cemented through endogamy, right? So people used to only marry, and still to this day, people only marry within that caste. And that is kind of the way that the system gets created, that it's this watertight compartments that you're not supposed to go outside of. And that means each kind of caste looks down upon the one caste below that, and then each cast above it thinks that, that they're superior to anybody else below them. And because of this kind of system, and because of that, the uh, only people out, up uh, on the top of that system held onto the position, positions of power, held onto the livelihood that kept that power, held on onto the love and marriage uh, kind of guidelines, held onto the land, held onto the public resources. And that kind of system still remains today. If you look at who is at the top of the government, who controls media, who, who controls uh, uh, capital and finances, it is still the people at the top most of the Varna system. So that is what we, uh, what we, uh, what I call, and what many people call the caste hierarchy that is kind of got formed through Brahminism, what is what we call it, what, what is really dominating Hinduism today, right? And so um, that is what we want to oppose and kind of get rid of.
Thank you for that explanation. I have some more, I'd like to clarify a few more points just for again, people that might not be familiar with the, the caste system. This might seem really, really basic and forgive me if it is, but can you, would you be specific about how many castes there actually are and what those categories based on occupation are? Mm. You know, uh, the thing is, so if, you, if you think about the Varna system, there is kind of um, four uh, uh, different castes. So there is the Brahmana, uh, Brahmins at the top, uh, Vaishyas, Kshatriyas, um, and Shudras. And then Atishudras are kind of the outside of the caste system in many in many ways, right? So um, there is the four Varnas, and then the fifth are the outside of the Varnas. They don't even belong. Uh, to that. Um, and then in, in general, uh, many parts of the um, uh, of the country in India, there's multiple caste system with caste systems within that. So even within one caste category, you'll have multiple castes that have a hierarchy within that caste. And so there is that that's what we call jatis in India and in, 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 in Hindi or Marathi is my language as we call jatis, um, where uh, in in my com- my particular caste category, there's many different castes. In even uh, Dalits and uh, kind of the most oppressed caste categories, there's a couple of castes in many different parts of the country. And so in many ways, there's like thousands of uh, jatis that exist. But when you look at the way that the Brahminism created, there's four main varnas. That makes sense. Thank you for that. That's super clear. Then where did it come from? from? Was, was there any textual base within the Vedas at the time of this uh, the, the, this, this Brahmanic uh, creation of the caste system? Or, or did, was it, like, what is the history of it? What is, was it pioneered by a particular group that just started to institute this? Or were they drawing upon certain texts that said that this is how it was? Uh, where, what was the, where, where did it come from? Was there a main proponent of this? And then it just kind of stuck Varnashrama Dharma is is the kind of the main uh, main form and main uh, kind of concept, right? It emerged as a concept um, in the middle of the first millennium uh, before BCE, and, and that is the the uh, place where it came from, and it emerged as a, as a kind of a, a a concept to in opposition to the other forms. So the Buddhism was really a dominant form at that time. Uh, uh, and other kind of shamanic traditions at that time who uh, who uh, you know practiced uh, and the the societal structure in different ways. Um, and there's different kind of um, schools of thought on this. People will uh, kind of uh, you know look at this history of that time in different ways. But Varnashrama Dharma, Dharma is the place um, where that that Brahminism at that at that time, the Brahminical system at that time, created to kind of make sense of how to how to create a structure in society. And the way that they created a structure was in this hierarchical form. Buddhism that didn't have this kind of hierarchical form, but Varnashrama created this hierarchical form to create a structure so that society could operate. But it operated in a very hierarchical and an oppressive way that put some people at the bottom and put some people at the top based on merit and based on occupation. Uh, I mean, it's imagine if you were told that you're, you know, you're doing the work of cleaning the toilets um, and you're doing the work of taking care of cattle. And now you're doing that work. And because you're doing that work, now you can't touch me anymore. 
right? Because you're unclean. But no, no, we we created the system and because and because we created the system, that's what you have to do. But now you're unclean. You can't eat the food in our house. If you come to our house, you have to drink water from the outside place. You cannot drink water from the main well or the main uh, place that everybody drinks water from. You have to drink water from somebody somewhere else. And that is the kind of system that they that was created just based on the social structure that they wanted to create at that time, right? And so anybody else outside of that, that particular top Brahmin um, community was not able to be even read and write um, spiritual spiritual structures, concept or, or the writings that they were created. So nobody knew or nobody could really challenge this because they were not able to read and, and write at that time. And so there are many kind of saints um, uh, who, who came later on in the 1600s, for example, there's Saint Tukarams, um, who, who was famously was an anti-caste saint who, who um, worshiped and prayed uh, one of our ancestral kind of gods in our area called Bitoba. And he wrote about this caste system, and, but he was also very spiritual. And he, um, he was shunned in the community. And so many, this is the, this is, these are the kinds of things have happened for centuries up to this day when Dalits are still doing manual scavenger hunt, you know, scavenging, and there's still um, uh, places where untouchability is practiced. This is a very rich and, 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 and deep history to dive into this. I think there are so many people who practice yoga and maybe have no concept of the nuance within Indian society and the history of India. Um, so I, the, this concept of, and if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but the um, Varnashrama Dharma is the idea, if we translate that directly, is that is that translated from somewhere in the Vedas as, as duties or the duties performed according to, so, or is it social divisions? And was this a concept that was in the Vedas and then got somehow co-opted into creating a power structure? Or was this a concept that was basically invented then? It was invented. I, it was not in the Vedas. Varnashrama uh, mm-hmm. Dharma was its own system that a lot of Brahmins came to follow many, many, many years later, and a lot of the that that was imposed on society, and eventually became kind of the dominant form that created the social structure um, that still exists, still exists in the form that it exists today. Um, yeah, I mean that's uh, it is. It, it, it many of these forms are created. Vedas were written by somebody as well. So mm-hmm. Dharma was also written by somebody mm-hmm. and created by the people at that time. Right. That makes that, that that's that it's very interesting how you know one say one text one idea that's presented during a certain time that gets uh, adopted as as a mainstream orthodox school of thought and then begins to play out and last for all these generations and get deeply deeply entrenched in power structures. So I think to to think about the origin of where it came from and if it was invented or if it if it was you know rooted in some text or something is very useful to for people to reflect on in regards to deconstructing and challenging it to see that hey wait a minute this isn't necessarily you know the word of god this is a, a human being that wrote this all these years ago that was within a tradition but 
you know, had this and it's having this impact in the world. So we can update, we can challenge it because mm-hmm. this is, you know, so this is the, the origin story isn't like divine intercession. The origin story is, you know, a human being who wrote a text and then it's having these impacts. So now if we can see these impacts and we can see clearly, then we can challenge it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'd love to go a little bit more into the concept of merit. So, you know, in the in the United States, we have the concept of, you know, that that that, you know, a, a meritocracy of, of effort so that merit is something that you you work for and, you know, you get. But I think the concept of merit is different within within this within this within this concept. Is that is that true? Is merit more like the, the birthplace you were born into and what blessing you have in this life from birth rather than what you do with that? I think it's I think it's it's. Both, right? I think so. What they're saying uh, in within this is merit is so you know uh, people according to the their occupation, which is really uh, ends up being what you're born into, is what you what occupation that you get, right? And so there's people in in um, different uh, parts of the caste system um, that are kind of uh, meant to. Um, be the creators of the wood workers are a caste. People who work with gold are a caste. People who work with um, doing uh, sewing clothes, that's a caste. That is a, that is kind of a structure that was created. But what, what is wrong about that, right? There's nothing wrong with saying like, there's people who do this occupation. There's people who do occupy this occupation. But if you put, um, kind of a um, a graded hierarchy on it, right? That's saying that a person who does occupation that is based on, on making clothes is superior, right? Than the person who works um, with leather, right? Who works because they're, they're working with leather. Uh, and the person who works with leather maybe is a little bit more superior than the person who works um, and taking away and cleaning toilets. And the person who is at the top, who is meant to read the be the responsible for reading the scriptures, who is responsible to read um, and 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 create the system, is the most superior. And all of that is based on where they were born. And so if you were born in that occupation, you were meant to always do that occupation. You were never allowed, if I was born in, in, the, in the clothing occupation, I would never at that time be allowed to be able to read, be allowed to be in the temple and decide that I was going to uh, teach spirituality suddenly, right? And so that is also what is kind of, in, in that way, it's merit, and, but it's also by birth. This seems like the opposite definition of what I know is merit, you know, um, maybe I'm coming at from the, the Western perspective of that definition of the word. So I think that's why it was useful to flesh it out. You know, most people mm-hmm. think, well, merit is, you know, um, if I'm if I'm born with this disadvantage and then I study really hard, then I get this opportunity over. That's a very Western concept. So I think, again, it's useful to unpack that for people that when we're talking about merit, it's not that the people don't have that ability to change castes within right. the system that you can't yeah. like work really hard at being a seamstress in the, in the sewing cast. And then like uh, with that, with that quote unquote merit from the Western concept of the word, like change cast, like that doesn't happen. Right. And it, that it, it has evolved, right? So I'm not going to say in this kind of society in India right now, 
there are people who have caught, gone, uh, gone outside their occupations, right? And done different things. Of course, there are many uh, people from Dalit community who are doing finance, who, I mean, people are reading and writing and you know, the community has, society has changed. But yet, if you look at the kind of uh, structures that still exist, like I mentioned before, people who are still controlling um, the government positions, if you people who are still controlling education and universities at the, you know, who are at the top of those places, people who are still controlling media, um, all of these people who are, are still the people who are who who were at that time when Varnashrama Dharma was created and the caste system continued, they're still the people who are at the who are then at the top of that system. And so, and that's because that kind of caste categorization and the occupation kind of that you have to remain this way, uh, remain that way because of the kind of uh, imp imposition of Brahmanism. Um, and 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 saying that this is a it's a religious doctrine that you have to follow, and that you cannot go outside and marry outside of that caste system, right? So you are always going to be born in it because you never married anybody outside of the caste system. People who do intercaste marriages are are killed or or, or are violently attacked still to this day, right? By upper caste people who fall in love with uh, across different caste categories. Uh, face a really hard time to this day. Um, and that is because there is a certain um, commitment to keeping this caste system and caste hierarchy alive so that people don't go outside of that kind of uh, structure that has been created for a long time. And so there will be incremental changes. There will be incremental um, ways that people from one category of the caste will be able to do different occupations. They'll be here and there are some people who are from Dalit and most oppressed caste communities be able to achieve some kind of financial gain and will be rich. But overall, those communities will still remain in that category unless we are able to really get rid of what this caste system is and, and belief in that caste system from all corners of society and from the structural kind of way that the India has created this. This makes a lot of sense. Thank you for stating that super clearly. There seems to be a very big danger in entrenching social position with religion and the conflation of this is what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do it, you're going against your religion. So at some moment, um, as you were explaining previously, that Brahmanism became the dominant form of what is now known today as Hinduism. So um, sometimes when I'm speaking to uh, people uh, about the concept of Hinduism, they often talk to me about, well, it's actually Hinduism is like, as you mentioned, is not, is not, not actually the religion. It's something bigger called Sanatana Dharma. So in this context of the larger philosophy, um, what is the difference, say, between Brahmanism, the concept of Hinduism, and Sanatana Dharma? How does that all fit in, in terms of philosophical bowls that hold different concepts? Well, listen, I'm not, a, uh, you know, I'm not going to presume to be like a <laughs> very deep and historical um, uh, I don't, I don't have that kind of historical knowledge to be able to kind of break those all three down. You know, I'm a, a social justice activist who has certain knowledge about these things. So I'm not going to go into it uh, in that way. But the, the reality is that 
Um, there are very, uh, historically, there are very different forms of spiritual practices that have existed in India that are kind of have gotten usurped into what we know as Hinduism today. Um, and so, for example, when we think about celebrating one of the holidays um, that we know uh, called Diwali, right? So Diwali is the festival of lights and it's kind of known in the, the dominant culture as, um, as the festival uh, that is about uh, triumph of good over evil. That's what kind of Brahmanism tells you that this is what it is. In many of the oppressed caste communities, the the way that people also celebrate this is celebrating the the uh, wishing for the king bully's return. King, king bully was uh, rem is remembered by kind of the peasant caste that I come from as the king who was the most generous of the kings who who uh, uh, wanted kind of uh, society in the to be. Uh, equitable. He was a farmer's king. Um, and uh, it, it, people kind of have the saying called Ida Pira Barisra Jayo, right? That that all the sorrows go away and may the kingdom of Bali come back because he was so generous and he was so good to us. Um, what the Brahmanic dominant tradition tells us for Diwali, what they do is, and what they say is that the the killing of Bali by uh, a Brahmin uh, uh the mythology is that Kalingabali by a Brahmin, uh, um, a, a god who took a Brahmin form, is what we celebrate. So they celebrate the killing of Bali. We celebrate the wishing of return of Bali, right? And it, to this day, some Brahmin households, the way that they celebrate this day is that um, they create a clay god, a clay Bali, and a, a Brahmin man is supposed to come back to the house and step on the king Bali and destroy it, right? And so these are the two different traditions that celebrate the same festival, right? And so, but what we know, what we know in the dominant form is that Diwali, the triumph of good over evil. To Brahmins, good is that, that Brahmin who took the form, uh, uh, the God who took the form, form of little Brahmin. To our communities, it's the Bali, right? And so that is not talked about in the larger kind of um, conversation when we talk about what is actually the Hinduism that we talk about and what is actually the spiritual traditions of many different uh, oppressed caste communities that we really should celebrate and people still celebrate to this day. So people practicing yoga today um, outside of India and maybe even within India, but very much in the, you know, um, non-Indian portions of the world have come into contact with a particular form of yoga, particular spirituality. Mm -hmm. And based on some of the things that you're saying is that this is, this is not the whole picture of the rich spiritual traditions within India. So would it, how would you describe the, the spirituality uh, that people who practice yoga today, what are they, what are, where are the origins of these practices and, you know, have, it sounds like perhaps the like your family history, your ancestors might not have had access to some of the teachings that are now kind of spread about, uh, you know, the, the 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 contemporary yoga world. So where does this access point come in, and what is the form of yoga that's being popularized? And the origin of the, the form of yoga that's being popularized around the the the, the, the non-Indian worlds today. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, you know, um, I think we have talked about this. I'm not um, necessarily like a big yoga practitioner. Um, I do. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I've always said that I have, uh, when I was growing up, I practiced some kind of, you know, um, the kind of the body um, you know, exercises that may be considered part of yoga um, that were kind of always, you know, the yoga sanas, right? The Sudha Namaskars and all these things that were always kind of part of my, um, you know, the way that wanted to make sure that I'm flexible and remain flexible all my life. And that's what we kind of practiced when I was growing up. And so I'm not, I, I'm not going to, uh, at this point in this podcast, I'm not going to try to go into my kind of knowledge about yoga. But what I will say is that from my knowledge that, you know, yoga has evolved. What we know of yoga today is evolved. It has included the forms of kind of breath uh, and, and the breathing exercises that were common to the, the or, you know, many different practices of yoga in India to kind of including some form of kind of um, Scandinavian oh, uh, um, kind of body and flexibility uh, forms that are included in that. So it is already, um, evolved from various different traditions and and what we know, know yoga today takes various different forms and so what i when i came into this particular uh um conversation about yoga it i came because i saw that many people were saying yoga is hindu um, and therefore nobody else should practice it without acknowledging that yoga is hindu um and then so the reason that i came into it is saying that well, yoga is also evolved in many different ways. It's a new practice in many different ways because of the way that it's for the, the form that it takes today. And Hinduism is also a newer phenomenon. If you, if you think about it, it was what we call Hinduism is a newer phenomenon. And so to kind of essentialize it as saying that um, you have to practice yoga in this way by saying these Sanskrit words, it becomes a really difficult thing for people who come from different Caste backgrounds, because personally, I don't have any attachment to Sanskrit. When I, you know, when Sanskrit itself was uh, kind of put as kind of this divine language that only was available to Brahmins, that it was only uh, kind of um, be able to uh, be read by Brahmins, um, and and to somebody who's coming from lower caste backgrounds, was that where it was never available to say that I have to practice and and pronounce uh, Sanskrit in this way is a very problematic thing, right? So that's kind of how I have approached it. So, you know, uh, that would be my answer to kind of what you're asking me and 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 to kind of saying that this is, has to be appropriate, this is a being appropriated by white people, this is a being appropriated by other people, when it's already kind of appropriated is, you know, when um, Brahminical and the cultural forms that Brahminical, have, Brahminical kind of traditions have created have been already appropriated. They've appropriated our cultures. They've appropriated our spiritual practices already. So how can they claim that somebody else is appropriating yoga? So when somebody from other places, the United States and other places, is going to study yoga, they have to interrogate what are the forms of oppression that exist in that culture? What are the forms of hierarchies uh, and exploitation that exists in that culture? When they're studying a certain form of spiritual practice, you always have to interrogate that. You cannot take it as it is. You have to see who created that spiritual text. What are they saying about the communities that people are living in today? And interrogate that, right? And so then you have to go beyond the Brahmins 
who, who have written that text. Hinduism also includes, um, um, you know, really reveration of somebody called Manu, who, who, who said that women should be burned for doing their certain things and that and certain things. Manusriti was one of the other um, kind of uh, texts that uh, Brahmins uh, supported and worshipped for a long time. And the guy who created that, Manu, was a very uh, you know, violent patriarchal person who wrote in text what should happen to women. You know, and so when you have these kinds of things and you, you if you are going into that kind of culture and you blindly follow a certain spirituality, that is a problem. Right. And so one should always have a power uh, kind of analysis to when you're kind of going into any form, whether it's yoga, whether it's other kinds of spirituality. So that's where I'm coming from. That makes a lot of sense. You know. Um, it starts to feel like it, there's no easy path. And I think that that's very good because when we're searching for the easy path, you know, do this and then you're good. Then it's just checking off boxes, which doesn't create this inquisitive mind and this deep sense of questioning. And, and that allows people that, that allows people to go into, you know, a more nuanced view of reality. You know, there are, um, were, were people practicing yoga who didn't even realize that yoga was from you know, from within India, even though, you know, as you mentioned, it's evolved and taken on different forms. There were people who thought that it was invented in the United States. And um, I've, I've literally spoken to people that said, you know, um, oh, yoga is from the United States. And I've had to stop them and say, wait, 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 no, yoga comes from India. So perhaps, you know, some basic concept of acknowledging where yoga came from has turned into a crusade um, to align particular practices with a particular form and then, you know, we find ourselves right back into power being entrenched and we find ourselves kind of replicating some of the harms of the past. Yeah. One of the, the, the things that, um, that, you know, when you've spoken about this in the past uh, that people have, have, have said and, and voiced uh, kind of questions about um, is that whenever there's a, a, a question and anytime I've shared something about, about questioning the caste system as well, there's this kind of big buzzword that gets thrown around of oh, you're perpetuating Hindu phobia. And then Hindu phobia begins to be this thing that just wipes away everything else. And then we have to focus on that. And at the same time, if we look within Western culture, say Judeo-Christian culture, we have to admit that there is some Hindu phobia within Judeo-Christian culture, and there is fear of non-Christian religions. There's even fear of, you know, of, of conversion and all sorts of things that go on in the sort of Judeo-Christian universe, and particularly the, the very extreme Christian universe. And, and so then it's almost like we're, we're throwing around different terms and missing the point, mm. you know. Um, so what do you, what do you say to someone who brings that up from, you know, from, from your vantage point, when, when you're bringing up these issues of social justice and someone says, oh, you know, you're being, you're, you're perpetuating Hindu phobia, you know, what, what's, what's your response to that from, again, from your vantage point? Yeah. I mean, to start with, to point out the contradictions and obvious kind of inherent flaws in an ideology and a system, which is Hinduism does not make it Hindu phobia, right? That, uh, when you understand the Hinduism uh, as a newly created form that is, you know, that has 
brought into it uh, its fold, kind of spiritual, multiple spiritual practices. You have to, in, you know, separate out the multiple spiritual practices that were that were the kind of indigenous practices of the communities that many of the people, many of the people in the place that I grew up in, you know, they worship ancestral gods. Those are the main gods that they worship. Um, and uh, those are ancestral gods of that town, the particular town. You know, you can call that Hinduism or you can call that this, you know, kind of indigenous, indigenous religion. But the, uh, what I'm talking about is Brahmanism also, right? What I'm talking about the, the Brahminism that created the caste system, which has become, come to dominate what we know as Hinduism. That's what I'm talking about. So that's one thing. But also pointing out the caste system. To this day, the town I, I grew up in, the villages in, to this day still are organized according to how people live according to the caste, where the Dalit community still lives outside of our village. That's where their, their, their homes are because that's, they were not allowed to come inside the village or live inside the village. To this day, how, this is how the society is organized. And when people from um, these communities are able to come to the United States, there is actual research that is showing and there's actual conversations that are happening right now in the United States where people, uh, Dalit communities, Dalit people, uh, are uh, who are the most oppressed caste? Just to reiterate, the oppressed caste of the late communities who are in universities, they're they're in in, in U.S. universities, and they face discrimination because of their caste, right? And to point this out is is uh, a weird, uh, when, when people are pointing this out, when organizations are pointing this out, when Dalit people are pointing this out, they are called Hinduphobic. And this is a problem. This is not any different than the critical race theory, theory issue right now, right? To point out that the race, racism is an issue has become a problem in many parts of the, uh, of the country right now. And the critical race theory points that out, that, 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 it, that racism is, is a problem in this country. It states that U.S. social institutions are laced with racism and it's embedded into our laws and regulations and rules and procedures. And to state that has become a problem. And so the same way to state that caste system exists in Indian communities and the caste system is part of Hinduism has become a problem because now people are saying that's Hinduphobic. That should not be. I can embrace some forms of his spirituality that have become to known as part of Hinduism and still think that some parts of this, this religion are, are inherently problematic. And so that I think if we don't do that, it's, it will be really hard to change anything. It will be hard to change our community if you don't admit the fact that there are some problematics of this, this, this spirituality and this religion. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I think that perhaps there's even a, a really, there's a, additionally a very, I, I think perhaps obvious thing that, that, that comes up for me is how can you, how, how can somebody be called Hindu phobic who's raised within the Hindu system? Like when I, when you translate Hindu phobia, it's like fear of Hinduism. And, and it was like, well, we're in the system and we're trying to improve that system. And, you know, for me, what comes up when I hear the word Hindu phobic is like, you know, evangelical Christians who are afraid that, 
you know, someone is going to get possessed because they interact with someone mm-hmm. from the different religion. So I've, in my mind, I've had a very hard time to actually make sense of how that's used as how that term has become weaponized to delegitimize the, 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 the social justice claims and, and, you know, to, or social justice critique to bring up, you know, real change within, within the system. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I mean, I mean, uh, to to kind of go back to what you were saying before is that it's not that uh, the dominant uh, kind of white supremacy culture in the United States it's not that you know when they look wh- when certain communities look at Hinduism they don't see it as othering right it's not that that doesn't happen it's not to deny that problem but to say that. If because of that, to point out the inherent flaws in something is problematic, is also not how change happens, right? Exactly. Um, another a, another thing that I think is worthy to perhaps talk about is um, a very main, a very big influence um, within India for the last you know few hundred years, which is the British occupation and colonialism. How did British occupation and colonialism uh, intersect with the caste system? And was there any change within the, you know, the colonial system? And has, was there any change uh, in, in decolonization? So when the British uh, finally left and India became free, were there market improvements or was the caste system, um, you know, used by the colonial occupying power for different purposes? Yeah. Um- you know, uh, there's been often a claim that is made that the caste system was created by the British or because of the British, um, which is a false claim. Uh, caste system, as I pointed out, always existed. It was it was <laughs> in some ways indigenous to uh, in India. Um, but uh, when British came, you know, any kind of colonial occupation does work with the powers, the the powerful within that community or that culture or that uh, area. So the British worked hand in hand with Brahmins and and, um, the Brahminical uh, powers that be worked hand in hand with the British in many, many, in many ways. And there were some uh, people who were from the Brahmin background and Brahminic, you know, background, of course, did resist and had uh, very much were part of the resistance movement. The Congress Party, which was the um, kind of the larger movement at that time, included all different castes and all different religions. Um, but at, at the same time, during the British colonialism, there was certain, you know, uh, we were, there was just a, in, recently there was a conference on counting castes, which is about caste census, right? So the it, it kind of creating the census based on the caste system but, uh, to, to, to make sure to that we know how many people are in which category of caste that exists in India, um, what kind of occupation they still have, what kind of economic um, where, where they fall in the economy. That's something that we would want to know, right? And when you want to create a system, when you want to create a census to determine what kind of uh, welfare system that you want to create so we can support people. That kind of creating caste census has been opposed since the colonial times. The you know, one of the times that that caste census was created was by the British, right? Um, and and since then, each of the uh, different parties and the ruling parties has opposed creating a caste system because it's a similarly right. You don't want to know in in the larger kind of way who 
it, even though it exists, the caste system is practiced by people, then there should not be any acknowledgement in the larger way. And if you create a caste census to determine who is part of which category, then you acknowledge that this exists still in our community. Um, and so during colonialism, uh, the, the there was a, a kind of a hand-in-hand way that the the Brahminical system worked with the British to say that, you know, uh, there is the, there's Islam and there's Hinduism and Hindus are all one, all the same. Muslims are all one. They're all the same. Although caste system exists in, in Islam because people who are Hindu did convert to uh, Islam, uh, they converted to, you know, some people were Buddhist before they converted to Buddhism. Some people created, converted to Christianity because they wanted, especially Dallas, they wanted to escape a, a system in which they were oppressed, in which they were already outcast. So what is the point of being part of a religion that is already putting them out of their, their community, right? And so many people did convert. And so what happened was the caste system get also went along with the people into these different religions. And so what, during British times, what the Brahminical kind of powers that be tried to do is that they tried to say, this is Hinduism, there's no caste here. This is Islam, there's no caste here. This is Christianity, there's no caste here. And so the, the people began to be pit against each other through religion rather than saying that caste systems exist all over, and then we should support people and uplift people across all caste categories. And British kind of supported that, right? British kind of said, okay, yeah, that sounds right. There's Hindus, there's Christians, there's Muslims. Let's divide and conquer that way, and then we can kind of leave, right? And so in that way, uh, kind of Brahminism, uh, colonialism both kind of supported the casteism and, and the erasure of caste to make sure that the the project of Brahmanism to make India into a Hindu state remained. And that's what has been done till today. The kind of the dominant form of the worst Hindu fundamentalism is now trying to make that possible. Now they're saying India should be a Hindu state because it has always been a Hindu rashtra or Hindu state, and anybody else that lives here is an other, is outside of this country. And that's what, what is being debated right now. And it's problematic because the people who are in power in government right now are either silent about these kinds of things or and, um, and, and support it, right? The, the project to make Hindu... Uh, nation and Hindu Rashtra that is India, it, either violently so in other forms. Right now, there's a big debate in Karnataka, where uh, which is a state in in India, where uh, young girls who are wearing our hijab are being thrown out of their schools because they're wearing hijab. This is happening right now. Right now. There, if you, uh, uh, people are making calls for mass genocide of Muslims, and the people powers that be are silent because they are supporting the ideology that says India should be a Hindu nation. And so, yeah, that's where that kind of logic goes to. Um, and you know, to to say that uh, British kind of created this is you know uh, is missing the point.
Thanks for explaining that. I think that the you know British occupation and the impact that colonialism has had you know on India on the evolution of spirituality within India is something that you know yoga practitioners need to become aware of and people that are interacting with this you know the India and the history of India need to interact with. At the same time, I also read this uh, about about this the, the, this situation happening in Karnataka with uh, women being banned from wearing the hijab and then the response was for um, some some other groups to wear a, a, a saffron scarf to kind of show support for um, the, you know, the, the nationalist movement. And then another voice came in and said, let's ban all scarves entirely. So you can't wear the hijab, but you also cannot wear the saffron scarf. And, you know, and then again, we start to think about it's not the issue of the scarf. It's the issue of, of creating equity and justice for yeah. all. Yeah. You know, um, and for for people who are listening now who may um, sort of be brand new to this information, um, uh, can they study with you um, and go deeper into this knowledge with you? Or are there resources that you recommend for people who are um, potentially just kind of opening their eyes to the, the, the depths uh, of needing yeah. to learn more about the intersections of casteism and dominant culture um, discrimination and how that intersects with the, the knowledge base that they know as yoga practice today? Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one of the uh, most prominent and well-known Dalit leaders who drafted the Indian constitution, Dr. Baba Saheb Ambedkar, um, he wrote a, a famous book called, uh, or it was a, a booklet called Annihilation of Caste, right? And I think that's a very important text to go uh, for people to read. Um, it's an important text. Um, there was a social reformer. Uh, his name was, he came from uh, um, the caste that uh, takes care of flowers, the flower, flower caste. Right, uh, Amali, um, and which was among the lower castes. Um, what they, what the, what is categorized in India as uh, other backward castes. It's an actual term, OBC. Um, and uh, so Jyoti Bafule uh, wrote about this, uh, this system. He talked about Varnashrama Dharma. He talked about also the prominent. A theory at the time, which was basically saying that the Brahmins were Aryans and everybody else was kind of the kind of the locals, so the Aryans are superior uh, and others are not. So he 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 kind of um, dissects that and he talks about mythologies and and counter mythologies. If the Brahmins have a certain mythology, what is our mythology? Or what is our counter mythology? And what has been kind of promoted as the real mythology versus the other mythologies of the oppressed community. So Fule, P-H-U-L-E, Fule is a great person. Him and his wife, uh, Savitri Bai Fule, they started one of the first girls' schools in India, in Maharashtra, um, and were ostracized for it because they started, not only started a girls' school, they also started, as, you know, in uh a practice where they included the late students, um, uh, uh, ex-untouchable students within uh, their classes, and they were um, thrown the people through cow dung at them for doing that. Um, and so um, we, if you want to read these, uh, really actually know about the, the kind of the contradictions within this, the pitfalls of the system, 
these are the texts also to go to by written by oppressed caste people to really interrogate what you're studying. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, we can include these in the notes uh, so that everybody can find these references easily. And how about you? Do you offer any courses or where people can find out more about your teaching and, and hear more about your voice? I don't. Um, I don't actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I will think about it for sure. Um, uh, my activism is to support kind of uh, social justice movements and leaders and their work in India and South Asia. Um, there are places here I would I would point to an important organization that's led by the uh, communities called Equality Labs. They do very important work on uh, caste uh, and discrimination that uh, press cast people face within the United States and other parts of the world uh, so that they're a very important resource to go to as well. Prachi, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your knowledge so bravely and courageously. Thank you so much for this time and I look forward to continuing this conversation and deepening education further in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.